Welcome to the future of NFTs, brought to you by Adlunum, the first engaged to earn proof of attention IDO launchpad. Hosted by co-founder Natya Bester, we bring you exclusive insights on NFTs, the revolutionary digital technology that's transforming the world as we know it. Hey, Web3 world, this is Natya Besta from Adlunum, the all-in-one Web3 investment ecosystem empowering early-stage startups. And of course, you are listening to The Future of NFTs, the show that looks beyond current NFT use cases to what non-fungible token technology is evolving into, all this as seen through the eyes and built by the minds of the fascinating guest speakers that we speak to each week and that you are joining us for. Uh, as for Atlunum, from tokenomics to community growth, VC fundraising to IDO launches and our unique engaged to earn platform, we're transforming the way investors experience the world of Web3 investing and dynamic NFTs. And through our monthly Web3 pitch arena, we are bridging the gap between innovative startups and venture capital. Now, today our topic is a rather serious one because it does touch on every single aspect of Web3, whether some people like it or not, and that is law. Now, joining us today... <laughs> yeah, we're going to get into that. <laughs> so joining us today is a true polymath in the world, in the worlds of law, education and blockchain. Jacqueline Cooper is the CEO of the Blockchain Legal Institute, and she has a passion that is rooted in personal discovery, which definitely shows up in the work that she puts out into the world. Part of this is to bridge the Web3 gap between complex concepts including law, and everyday understanding with a very hands-on approach that we can all learn, for, all learn from. And I'm very excited to get into more details about exactly what her approach has been. Uh, so Jackie is, as I said, the founder of the Blue, uh, Blockchain Legal Institute, and she's also the host of multiple different talk shows, including Crypto Mom 2 and the Government Blockchain Association. Now, Jackie's commitment to the Web3 industry which, as I said, I'm very excited to get into because it really speaks to the multiple pathways that people come into this industry, uh, is really fueled by a multifaceted background spanning law, national board special education, and she's the author of a series of books, Bitcoin Cinderella among them. Very excited to be talking about this. As for the Blockchain Legal Institute, uh, Jackie will definitely be telling us more about this, but this is a central hub for the blockchain community focusing on three pillars, education for professionals and legislators, insights for legal compliance, and opportunities for marketing and leadership. Now, BLI, the Blockchain, Blockchain Legal Institute, uh, unites experts and enthusiasts through events, webinars, books, and campaigns, and doing the very important work of fostering a well-informed community that is ready to navigate this extremely rapidly evolving blockchain landscape. So Jackie, I'm extremely excited to be talking to you today because especially starting with the first question, because we've had this conversation before and I would love to ask you once again, please tell me what has your journey been to get into this industry of blockchain that, as I said, is evolving on a daily basis, is so complex for so many different people. And your approach is something that I absolutely have found to be so incredibly hands-on and inspiring because I think there's not too many people that when they educate themselves and their audience uh, post that, 
take such a, you know, really just getting your hands dirty, getting stuck in there, making sure you understand something to the deepest possible level. So I'm very excited to hear what is your background story that led you to being here with us today? I'm, I'm really excited to be here too. I mean, when I think about my own personal journey, um, you know, it's, it has not been very traditional, but then even when I was a little girl, I mean, it was so funny. I either wanted to go into science or I wanted to go uh, into politics, which I have never done. But um, I thought that if you were going to be the president of the United States, you had to be a lawyer, which um, is not the case. <laughs> but I, I always loved service. I always loved helping people. So I ended up going into law school. But because of my passion for healthcare and patients' rights, I ended up um, stepping into that space initially. Um, but at college, my major was multidisciplinary. It was science, technology, and society. So many years later, when I learned about blockchain, it really felt um, very comfortable to me because um, the technology was something that I was really interested in learning and understanding. It was kind of confusing to me since I'm not a coder, but I love math. So I was trying to figure that out. But it also, there was, you know, the the overlapping implications of policy and application. So, um, you know, being a, um, a parent, I always tried with my daughter to inspire her to try new things. And I also realized that, okay, if I'm going to be encouraging her to do new things that I need to kind of walk the talk to. So, um, so that sort of kind of um, led me into learning about a lot of different areas. And when I First, I had no interest in finance. Um, so when I first learned about blockchain, it was through an altcoin. And um, I, when I say I had no interest in finance, the traditional finance world. But when I learned about altcoins, it was like, huh, this is interesting. What? Tell me, you know, let me figure it out. But when I, when I was trying to online meet people. I was struggling with finding people that I could ask questions and not feel like they were just trying to sell me something. So I, I'm an avid traveler and I, I, I met a woman in Scotland and she had been in the, um, the, the cryptocurrency area for a while and she was very patient with all my questions. She showed me how to open up a wallet, which was not very intuitive to me. And I realized as I was struggling with learning this part of the space that others probably were too. So I thought, okay, you know, um, I can do a show. I'll do a talk show. I'll, I'll document my journey. And, and in doing that, it might help someone else who has the same questions. And, and then I started reaching out to different people all over the world as I was starting to research um, my questions. And I learned about NFTs. I learned about metaverse. I learned about a whole slew of other topics. And one thing led to another. Um, at the same time, that was about six years ago. At the same time, well, actually prior to that, I I, I am a, I am an active lawyer. I am licensed in the States, but I also love working with children. So about 16, 17 years ago in my state of Maryland, they have uh, what they call a resident teacher program. So you could go back and get recertified. And so I went back up to master's so I could become a special education teacher. So I'm dual certified in that. So at the same time that I'm doing my outside entrepreneurial projects, um, in the afternoon and evenings, I'm teaching. And as I was teaching, I, cause I, 
I realized, you know, there's all these alternative learning styles and there's all this need for um, different types of education and we all learn through stories. So, or at least that's one way that we learn. And so I realized as I was learning more about blockchain, about Bitcoin, about NFTs and about cryptocurrency, that there was an educational gap. There wasn't anything there that I saw that existed that could be a read aloud for parents and adults with children. Now, children, um, my, my daughter included, she was already gaming. So they understand about tokens. They understand about a lot of the different um, technology uses. And that's not my generation. I, I This was not native to me, but I was become, especially as a teacher, I had to adapt. Otherwise, you don't do. And also as a teacher, I realized I needed to learn the hands-on side of it in order to be able to teach the students if they asked me questions. And so um, so that sort of led to me, and I also became a Bitcoin miner as I was exploring Bitcoin and, um, you know, other, uh, I now have a node, so I'm learning about that. But I realized I needed to write a story. So I started to write uh, the Bitcoin Cinderella series. And I always say to everyone, it's sort of like the Harry Potter and the blockchain. So I looked at the Cinderella story and the first book, because um, I, I have another book, which I'll talk to about in a second. The Cinderella story, I t- looked at the framework and I looked at all the blockchain terminology that um, someone who might need to know might need to step into it. So I incorporated um, a timed NFT in the uh, in the ball to kick Cinderella out. I, the ball was in the metaverse as well as within the palace space. The wallet was um, included seed words, but um, again, big disclaimer here. You know, the prince had some seed words, Cinderella had the others. So when the um, the wallet opened, that was the glass slipper. So I looked, and then in the back of the book, there were QR codes to glossaries and other things. But so it's a it's a very easy read, and it allows people to um, step into the world of blockchain and the terminology, because each area, as I was researching, is very rich with the vocabulary, and it's kind of um, overwhelming, especially if you're new. And so the second book that I wrote... Um, is the Bitcoin Cinderella and the Seven Dwarves, and it's the Snow White um, fairy tale, and that's about Bitcoin mining, and it talks about hard forks, soft forks, you know, you name it, and lightning, and you know, for each book I'm researching, I have um, two other books which we'll talk about in a second um, that are on the plate that I'm I'm researching and writing about, but. Um, this sort of brings us to the Blockchain Legal Institute. I was at the Bitcoin conference in May in Miami, and um, CleanSpark had sponsored the giveaway of my second book, the Bitcoin Cinderella and the Seven Dwarves. All the books are available on Amazon for those that are interested. Um, but I was giving the book away for free. We had about a thousand copies, and a young woman who was an attorney came up to me at the table and said, how are you doing practicing blockchain law? How did you get into it? And I shared with her, I'm not, I'm in education, but I can give you resources. And when she walked away, I turned to my associate um, who's at the table and I said, uh, this is going to be hard for her uh, because there's so many different topics. And, and like you said, the space is evolving so fast. So it's really hard to know where to look, what to do. And I said, and I drew out, 
a picture that I had in my mind as to how to solve this problem. And I said, can we do this? And he said, yeah. So the Blockchain Legal Institute was created and it's www.bli.tools, T-O-O-L-S. Um, and it is a centralized hub for our decentralized world. And so it has news events, it has information about artificial intelligence, it has a Bitcoin vertical, an Ethereum vertical, a blockchain use vertical, because it's being, you know, blockchain is being used in a lot of different businesses. Um, it has associations, it has, uh, we're affiliated with the anti-human uh, trafficking intelligence initiative. Um, it has a it's a library of resources, basically. It has laws from all 50 states, has laws from around the world and every country. More, more countries are being, added, are being added every day. And um, I know that where we are now, where it's going to be in the, in the next six months to a year, it's going to be a really rich resource for individuals to do research and learn about laws and policies, as well as basic information. Uh, but again, um, I'm really excited for the associations that are coming on board, the partners that are coming on board and the members, because it's going to be an, an international networking space where people can um, actually communicate with others. And we're, we're, we're having our first global education summit in October. Um, so it's, uh, I'm really excited about all this because it combines my passion of law and education and supporting those that are both new into the community as well as those that are more experienced that just need access to a resource that um, has reliable resources. So that's a lot. Uh, <laughs> that is a lot, but it's an amazing journey. And I think what really comes through so absolutely clearly is your commitment to education. And this is something that we, you know, we throw the word around in Web3 all the time uh, about the importance of education. But there's very few people that actually put their money where their mouths are in the way that you have. I don't speak to many people who want to learn about mining and then actually, you know, start up having end up end up having their own nodes. So I think that really is a testament to your dedication to truly understanding something A and then B, you know, making it available to other people. Um, so I want to kind of there's so much to get into. So I want to yep. start off at a point. Maybe let's start with the elephant in the room. Uh, you know, most people in the Web3 space, um, when they hear the word law, they hear the word regulation, that's it. it let's let's say it doesn't put a smile on their face uh, per yeah. se. So maybe let's start there. For you, what is the role of law in this space and why is it necessary? So um, as a lawyer, one of the pet peeves that I've had for my profession, which is why I've had a non-traditional law practice, and I think I might have mentioned this to you too, I do not like the idea of billable hours. Um, and when I was first starting off in law, my whole focus was on solving a problem, helping a client, not thinking about the little seconds that needed to be billed. And, and that was very frustrating to me because that's just not how my mind works. So, um, you know, going into the policy side, um, I understand the need for protecting the consumers. I understand the need that there are both good players as well as bad players that are out there, but that's true in every, in every business. Um, I think that there needs to, and also as an entrepreneur, I, um, I understand that there needs to be laws to support businesses 
but my concern is the um, overregulation, which dampens creativity. I know personally right now uh, in starting the Blockchain Legal Institute, I am opening up a bank account. And it has been um, not a very easy transition because the bank keeps asking me, are you going to accept crypto? Why are you accepting cash for when you sell your books? All of these, I understand they need to, you know, make sure that there's no money laundering and things like that. But every time I say no, 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 or this is the explanation for what it is that I'm doing, they come back with another question. And so you know, this type of law sometimes can be good because it can um, prevent fraud or help, you know, maybe slow down that area. But at the other side of the equation for um, the business person, it's not. So, you know, within this space, the Web3 space, the NFT space, the blockchain space, the other challenge we have is the diversity of laws and definitions that exist around the world. Now, every country has its own, you know, the, um, area that they're going to allow or not allow. But that also, if you're, if we're, some of these laws are international, so it cuts across. But if you're, if you're playing in the space or doing business or being creative in this space, um, you know, it's hard to know if what you're doing in one place is going to be allowed in another place. And that, that's where confusion happens. So, um, and that's part of the frustration that I have um, wearing the legal hat is um, sometimes I think the definitions are being defined by people who have not actually been in the space. And so that means that they don't really understand because they're only being educated by those that are giving them um, research reports. Um, but then again, there are some that are very educated. So, you know, it's a balance. So. Um, so law can be good, but it also can be a hindrance. Yeah, I mean, I think you touched on a really good point because generally in this industry, just in terms of definitions, and I'm not even talking about law, for every concept that we have in Web3, even the term Web3 itself means yep. completely different things to different people. And that's to the lay person or to industry professionals. It's not even touching on legal definitions that come with you know, very real world consequences. So I'm curious, obviously the, the role of the Blockchain Legal Institute is to bridge this gap. But generally speaking, you know, wearing the hat both as the CEO of BLI, but also a lifelong educator with a massive commitment to making sure that, you know, the, the murky waters that people move in become easier to understand. What is your overall philosophy in terms of where we are right now as an industry where it's so much confusion is just happening all over the show? I mean, we've, we've seen it play out in the US where you know, a company is trying to comply with regulations and then only to find out, okay, but they're not, but what do they have to do? Well, they don't know. So, so there's so much official confusion, never mind the industry confusion. So how do you think we're going to get to this state that we're in right now where no one really knows what's going on, moving towards a future where we do kind of have more of a shared understanding, not only in the industry, but also, as you say, between the different legal uh definitions and understandings uh, from country to country? So there are some really great associations that have been looking at this challenge um, 
for a number of years and they have um, they're doing some really great I'll call it lobbying and education um, to help with the standards and standardization and quality assurance. Um, I mean, blockchain has been around for for more than 10 years. You know, it's been around for 20, 30 years. You know, it's just that the technology maybe um, wasn't as publicly known, but the major companies were starting to explore and trying to figure out how to use it. And then sometimes because I've interviewed some of the individuals who were around when they, you know, the, just er, these technologies started, but they, the major companies didn't know how to, how to integrate it. So they just put stuff on the shelf until, you know, down the road. But um, in terms of the, the laws and the associations, I think we're at a point now where um, there's more collective conversation going on like in the eu with the artificial intelligence um and i'm not saying that that everything needs to be standardized um globally like that but even the un they're using blockchain so there's um different organizations who start to incorporate it where these technologies become mainstream then those individuals and those players are going to have also a conversation on how does this, how, how can this support them? Cause it's all, you know, we all are personally invested. How does this help me? You know, what's in it for me and, and then what's in it economically. So when it starts to become what's in it for me, what's in it for me economically for the big players, then they start to make sure that it becomes more accessible to everyone else who's not a big player. And unfortunately, it's the, it's the big first and not the individual. It should be the individual first and then the big. But I think that we're going to, it's going to become more standardized, but maybe not in a bad way. And, um, and that's the approach with the Blockchain Legal Institute too. Well, for all the pages that are on there with all the information, I'm, I'm definitely trying to give definitions, but I'm also trying to really focus on highlighting what are the legal issues within each of these areas. So um, so that way the broad framework, whether it's intellectual property or, you know, the copyright or family law, whatever the, the areas that might impact it can be um, outlined. And um, so again, there's, there's so many different layers here, but I think that we are going to have both standards within the industry, which is going to also help individual consumers know that a company that says that they are providing a certain service can actually provide that service. I mean, because that's also the challenge is I'm not a coder, so I don't know anything about Solidity or any of these other protocol platform. I don't know. I know, you know, open source, but I wouldn't be able to look at it and say, okay, that's a bug or that's okay. And so we need, we do need both the technical side as well as the policy overlay side. So if we end up putting our business on a blockchain protocol, we know that certain standards are there. So the privacy, the identity theft doesn't happen. You know, we're, we're, there's so many different pieces to this, Um, but it's an exciting time.
Yeah, that it definitely is. Something ex- sometimes it's exciting in the way that it gives you gray hairs and, and ages you before <laughs> your time, but it's always exciting for sure. <laughs> um, I want to touch on something that you said about the conversation having started. Now, of course, at this level of regulatory players and, you know, the big industry players, that's a very high level conversation that is happening. And that is important because they are consumers and there's actually a lot of consumers who are not involved in this industry whatsoever. And so the only information they're getting is, for example, from the media. And the media says, well, crypto is a scam and NFTs are a scam and all of these things are scam and stay away from it. So I'm curious because you you, you straddle both worlds. You're both involved with the the, the legal professionals and those players that are the ones that really have a vested interest in these high-level conversations. But you also have an audience that you... You know, have been educating like the everyday uh, people of the world that don't necessarily understand all of these legal definitions. So how do you see these two conversations interacting? The average person who doesn't necessarily have the amount of, let's say, time or enthusiasm that you had in really learning about this, but, but they still need to understand the basics of what's happening and how to how to safeguard themselves, I think is probably the most important thing. I think um, I got into the talk show side for my own personal interest, trying to learn and then also sharing out and educating others. But as I continue to explore the media side and listening to um, Euronews and other news platforms, my concern is the responsibility of media in 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 being educators as well. And I think that um, the challenges is when we only look at sound bites, like you said, and where crypto is a scam, that's not doing a deep dive as to the applications where, you know, it really can be used and where, or, you know, the applications of how NFT is bridging both the digital as well as the, um, products, you know, and the immersive environment. I mean, there, there's so much creativity that is here. And that's the problem that I have with the media is that they're only looking for the 30 second hit to get the next feed out instead of education. So like with when I do my talk shows, I'm talking to individuals who own businesses and who are um, trying to solve a problem and who are exploring the space in a variety of topics. And I'm interested in figuring out, okay, how, who are the clients that you serve? And then what's the technology and what's the definitions around it? And I'm always in my, in my shows trying to also read, Redefine. So you were you were saying about the El Salvador government and working with them in order to translate Bitcoin Cinderella into Spanish. Yeah, yeah. So I'm really excited about working with different associations and in in working with the the, the Bitcoin Association to try to get uh, the Bitcoin Cinderella Spanish English version to the families that are learning within their country. I also realized that I now have to think about, okay, I need a Bitcoin wallet. I need a point of sale, you know, little store. So if someone wants to buy it with Bitcoin, not from Amazon with US dollars or the other currencies that are available there, how do I set it up? And that's, those are the, the, the practical steps that have to happen. But as a consultant 
whether a lawyer or accountant or whoever, you know, might have clients like me come in and say, okay, I, I want to do this. I have a book now and I want to have it go into other countries and I want to have it be navigate the, the crypto side. The other thing is I'm going to jump over to the NFT side. So last year in July, I was at the NFT Expoverse in California and Project Arc um, was helping me get my book onto OpenSea. And there was a whole slew of other issues that we realized in putting a book into an NFT, one copyright, but also then the size of it. Um, because I was doing an audio. And so again, we, you know, there's a lot of technical things that kind of overlay the, there's all, it's all creative, but it kind of overlays the business side, as well as the distribution side, the supply chain side. I mean, it is an, the, the conversations that I've had with those that I've interviewed um, from around the world um, have been fascinating. I mean, I was talking to a, um, a company in South America who um, uses NFTs to document the supply chain with companies, major supply companies down there. You know, so it's the the cross applications, and then you get into the legal side. You know, because of the fact that some of these the the products are coming, the products are traditional, but the communication of sharing the information might be consider it not traditional, but I don't even think that these days not traditional even applies because everything that we're doing that was once unknown or not usual, like we had rotary phones, now we have cell phones. So as the technology changes, we have, you know, hotels, we have B&B now, you know, so again, as the technology changes, it becomes more part of the mainstream. And this part of the mainstream, yes, it, the laws have to apply to it, but we also have to have flexibility so that way we don't stifle the creativity. So um, it's a, you know, it's, there's many layers here and um, we need individuals who can ask questions, who can help educate those that are in the, the policy side and um, who also will vote. I wanna say, no matter what country you're in, if you have the ability to vote, and you're in the space, you need to vote. Because if you don't vote and you don't speak your mind as to what you want, then others are going to make that decision for you. And that is critical right now. We need to say that we are here. This is what we want. Otherwise, they're going to be making decisions because they don't think it's a large space. Yeah, no, absolutely agree with you. I think it's so important to stress that even though it feels as an individual that your voice doesn't count, uh, we are a collective. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, it's only by means of being a collective, coming together, uh, really stating, you know, standing your ground for one and stating what you believe in and, and, and really going after it that we're able to, in, well, separate ourselves as an industry in the sense you were mentioning earlier that, you know, this top-down regulation really stifles uh, creativity. And I, and I want to get more into that. Um, but I saw earlier in one of the many spaces that we've had today uh, in, the, in the audience comments uh, that there were quite a f in, in the audience questions, rather, there were quite a few uh, questions about um, CNBC. So I wonder 
what are your thoughts on the role of this uh, in in terms of, you know, kind of sending the industry in a certain direction as opposed to another, which obviously there's there's people that are for it. Uh, they definitely, I think, in the minority at, the, at this point, but there are many governments pushing for a national digital currency as opposed to the more decentralized nature of, of Web3, uh, you know, as a concept. So that's a really interesting conversation about national digital currency. Um, some people are concerned about governments turning money off. Others are not. Um, I, I don't see any problem with it, but that's a personal opinion. I think that um, the, ch- the, the challenge with national digital currencies is we also... <laughs> It goes back to privacy. Um, we have our personal privacy has been eroded over the years because we don't read as the Internet has evolved and the Web3 has evolved. We don't read our terms and conditions. And so we click yes because we want access. And that's the same thing with a lot of these artificial intelligence tools. I have um, a note writer on some of my stuff, but I click I exit out of that because I realized I don't know where my notes are being housed. I don't know where the videos are being housed. And, and um, I don't know who has access to that information. So the same thing could be said with national digital currency. If we have, um, if it's a one to one ratio, and it's digital, and it's on a national wallet, and it's in your bank, but it's also tied to a hybrid, um, uh, physical coin that you actually have um that's one area to think about but also think about in your bank unless you actually have the cash in your hand in your bank that's digital right there all it is is a line item that says you have a hundred dollars in your bank account but your bank might not actually have the physical cash and um if you you know if you are going to be pulling out a lot of money, you have to give them notice, at least in the States, that you're pulling that much money out because they might not have it. They might have to move it from a different source. So the digital idea of digital dollars and things like that, we're already dealing with digital money. So I don't see that as a challenge, but I think that there might have to be certain safeguards put up to protect privacy, to protect access, that type of thing. So we already are using PayPal, Memo, and other digital. So really the idea that the government wants to get involved, I don't. I just see it as an extension of digital banking that we're already doing, but we probably need to put in some protections in place for the consumers who might be using that. Um, so, And it has to be backed. I, my concern is that a lot of times, um, at least in the States, our money's not backed by gold anymore. So, you know, again, there's. we just need to think how are we – what what is the value of this and and how is it going to be used and how are the consumers who are using it going to be protected i want to i want to touch on because you mentioned privacy and the example of the ai note takers and i mean zoom recently had this huge uh, controversy about their privacy uh, terms and conditions that they've updated and you know stated that it will be tra- used to train ai models and you can't mm-hmm. really opt out 
Um, so the role of a book like Bitcoin Cinderella, for example, yeah. um, if we think about the the educational aspect, I mean, you, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, how humans are really primed to learn through storytelling. And I mean, this is true for pretty much any concept. It's much easier, no matter how complex, uh, you know, it is to digest something. If you pick up a children's book and you read, you know, uh, front to back, by the end of it, even if it's a rudimentary understanding, you will have more of an understanding, let's say holistically, as opposed to reading an article and it's a whole bunch of text and it might be words that are, you know, really high level. But if you put it all together, you wonder to yourself, I mean, what did I just read? So do you think that books like Bitcoin Cinderella, for example, is something that could educate people about privacy in a way that at the moment, not many people are concerned about privacy. They don't understand why it's an issue. And I think that's a much larger conversation than just Web3. I mean, this is something that we've been seeing in tech over the years. I was actually laughing to myself when you, when you mentioned about the terms and conditions, because I went to a doctor the other day and I signed the, the uh, you know, the way waiver and I signed in one place without reading and then I signed in the other place without reading and then I realized I'd cancelled out my first signature by signing my <laughs> signature, my second one and I was just realizing once again how primed we are to just say yes and put our signature so we can move on to the next thing. So do you think that the role of storytelling especially in this you know, way where, I mean the way that you've used Bitcoin Cinderella, it's something that obviously most people in the world have come across the fairy tale. It's something that they can relate to, whether they're reading it to the kids, whether they're reading it for their own benefit, just to understand the, the, the basics of what you're talking about. Do you think that also we would be able to convey the importance of privacy, data ownership and these kind of things more through a storytelling medium than what we are doing right now, kind of scaring people and saying, oh, you need to start caring because, you know, the implications are so big. Yeah. Where do you think the role of storytelling lies, especially in Web3, um, where there's just so much complexity? I love I love what you're talking about. And I was smiling as I'm, I'm listening to you because part of the conversation that I've had with the individuals that I'm um, uh, collectively talking to for the Bermuda story, which will be the Bitcoin Cinderella and the Pink Sands Treasure of Bermuda when it finally gets written, is we were talking about how they don't have um, one fairy tale. And so I'm approaching it that each chapter is going to be a different oral conversation that Cinderella has with um uh, the children on the island. And for those that don't know the story, the Cinderella story in the original story, I, in, in Cinderella, the mom dies, but in my Cinderella, um, I have Samantha's mom be one of the original blockchain engineers who worked with Satoshi. And so she actually leaves Cinderella to go on another quest in, in the metaverse to solve another problem. So Cinderella over these 10 books is on, um, a, a hunt to find her mom and her mom's leaving clues in the various parts of the blockchain so that way they can reconnect and every time Cinderella thinks she sees her it's something else that she's discovering and so one of the things that I've talked to the Bermuda team about is the idea that within the story because there are a lot of pirate stories is the idea that there will be hacking and I can talk about that and and tied to that is the idea of privacy or you know personal identity theft so yes that is going to be discussed in the next book because that is something that we um 
we understand about, you know, if you have a, a coin cryptocurrency, you might want to move it over to a cold wallet, you know, and not leave it on an exchange that can get closed down. But um, we don't always think about those things. I'm, I'm a victim myself. I mean, I'm a Bitcoin miner, but the company that um, I had my rigs with, they had, and again, this was because I wasn't educating myself. They had a master pool and then we had sub wallets. I didn't realize that until I ended up um, having that access closed. And so, again, there's a lawsuit going on. But as a result of, of, I was just very trusting, you know, thinking, oh, well, this is great. I have my daily drop of Bitcoin into my wallet and I, th- and I didn't move it over into um, a, anywhere else. And so those are things that, you know, as <laughs> no matter how intelligent or educated you are, we, you know, we still have to kind of do the research. And with the privacy side and the terms and conditions side, we get bombarded with information every day. And like you said, we don't take the time to read. And even if we did read, would we say no? Because we want the, we want the services, we want the products. So what choices do we have? What would happen if we did say no to the terms and conditions? That's something that we might want to look at within the laws. That might be a consumer protection thing that we might want to talk about because if we don't have a choice to say no, then that means we don't have access to that product. And um, if we say no to accepting the cookies, we can still access. But that's not always, you know, again, there's many layers to this. And um, because we are now more of an online community, um, the old way of doing things needs to evolve and change. So I think that is going to be one of the new legal policy discussions that happen. You know, people are concerned about AI and that you, you mentioned about the zoom. Um, but I don't see that necessarily as a negative because AI is a tool that can, that's harnessing information, but it, it's only it can only harness the information that it's been given. So like when I use chat GBT, it says up to 2021, I think it is. Um, after that, they don't, it supposedly doesn't have information. You want it to be current. You, so it has to gather new information, but um, you can still put limits on the information that it gathers. And I do think you're right. We have to have the ability to opt out. But I also know that when I open my Zoom up, I have a list, a laundry list of different apps that I could maybe have either a free trial with or use. I think that they Zoom probably needed to cover itself by saying that they're used that that everything is a yes because they're now offering these apps. And they, it probably would be a lot more complicated legally for them if they gave us an opt out because they're pushing these apps onto every screen. So they might not technically be able to opt those apps out if someone said no. So again, um, it's not right, but it's, I can see how, why in their business model they did it. But I think this is such a great full circle having come from the, you know, the beginning of our discussion today about what really is the, 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 the role of law 
And then if we think about something like, yes, we want people to think more about privacy and they want to think more about their own digital footprint across the internet, but then the discussion about are you even able to opt out, that's something that really not a lot of people are having because, I mean, we've been so entrenched in our thinking to think, well, I mean, the only way to opt in is to say yes, and if I don't opt in, well, then I, I don't play the game along with everyone else. So definitely that's a very good full circle to understand, but yes, that is really a very important role of law is to safeguard these things in a sense that people don't think about this they don't even think about the basic privacy so how to even you know do that mental gymnastics to get to the point of but wait you know what this is not right that i that i'm not able to opt out um but i'm i'm watching the comments and i see there's a question here that i think really kind of ties into uh to a lot of what we've been speaking about um let me just quickly find it now i'm scrolling and scrolling uh, what advice would you give moms out there or people in general who are still not sure or are afraid to get into crypto? And I think, I mean, we've touched on so many different aspects that you can say, yes, it is, you know, it, it's pretty legit to feel scared because, I mean, no matter how educated you are in the space, how no matter how educated you are in general, you know, you're not going to safeguard yourself necessarily from falling into scams, from falling into mistakes made simply because you didn't read the terms and conditions. So what is your advice for whether it's moms or just any newbie that wants to get into this industry? And as you said at the beginning, you know, your specialization when, when you were studying was such a wide variety of aspects. So obviously your brain is very much geared to think in these different, uh, let's say, buckets. But for most people to jump from finance to economic, I mean, finance and economics to technology to the, uh, you know, the, the sociological factor, it's a lot to ask of people. So what is your advice to someone that's just starting out? It, it is a lot. Um, so a few things. Um, before I talk about the crypto wallet side, I want to just kind of, I, when you were, when you started talking about the mom side, it's sort of tied into something that I was thinking that I wanted to kind of connect back over to the privacy side. As a mom, um, we also, as a parent, because, you know, I'm sure their dad's on here too, um, we want to protect our child's privacy. And that's also something that we have to look at because um, kids are online, they're gaming, they're saying yes to conditions too. They, and the platforms are maybe saying, are you a certain age? And the kids are probably lying saying, yes, I am. And making up an, a date and whatever. So this is, this is another reason why I wrote the Bitcoin Cinderella books. You have to have a conversation with your kids about protecting their identity because their digital footprint, it's not just about putting pictures online anymore. You know, their digital footprint will live forever. And that's another thing as a lawyer, and I will get over to the crypto side in a second. As a lawyer, I also have access to, um, in the United States, affordable flat rate legal services. So people can reach out to me about that. I'm passionate about everyone having a will. If you don't have a will, even if you're single, you need a will. Because if you have a digital asset, you have an asset that you need to will. Because if something, and your family needs to know how to access that asset. I created my, I have a daughter who's 27 now. Um, and I created a, uh, another book, which I popped online to Amazon because it was a wallet organizer. Because when I asked her, do you have an interest in learning about what I'm doing? She said, not really. I said, well, you need to. Because even if I invest $10 in Bitcoin, that is your inheritance. And if you don't know how to access it, then that means that when I pass, 
it will stay online forever. And the inheritance that I'm trying to create for you, you won't know how to reach. So it's really important to have these conversations about privacy and also your digital assets with your family. I know people are afraid to let people know how to access your seed wallets and all that other stuff, but your family needs to know. And so that's something that I'm really, really passionate about, which is the other reason why I created the BLI.tools, Blockchain Legal Institute, because those are things that it's, these are conversations we don't always want to have. Going back to the cryptocurrency side, start, and again, this is not legal advice, not investment advice, not financial advice, all those disclaimers. Start small. Do not, you know, don't be afraid to start, but don't use your money for that you need for the rent or the mortgage or food or your kids. Just start to try something. Don't be, af- if you put something in, be willing to lose it. You know, um, don't have it be um, something that is so critical to you that you, if something happens to it, you're not, you know, it's going to, it's going to stress you out, but start to explore. That's, I mean, that's what I did. I just started to explore small bite-sized ways. Um, you know, again, the, uh, the Blockchain Legal Institute is, is a platform that I'm hoping will provide people with that comfort of the education that they have in and to ask more questions um you have to ask questions to learn and that's what we teach the kids if you don't understand something ask a question and um and like they always say you know with the word fail it's just first attempt in learning you know we we have to when you learn when you ride a bike you don't get on the first time and, and just ride, you fall. So you have to have the, you have to have that, you have to take the time to have that experience, not be afraid to have the experience, but have mentors who can help you lift you up instead of tear you down. Well, Jackie, I think after listening to you for the past hour, uh, for those of us who were who patient enough to deal with all of the technical <laughs> issues, um, I think it's very clear that you definitely fulfill that role very, very well in this industry of providing the education, providing the simplification of the education and also the mentorship that is so sorely needed for people to, exactly as you say, you know, I always say the difference between having never tried something and trying it for the first time is zero to a hundred. So once you take that first step, yes, then it is the first step, but you cannot even begin to understand any of how this works and why it works and why it exists if you don't get your hands dirty take five dollars if that's you know if that's what you can afford to lose take five dollars really just understand by doing as opposed to trying to really ingest all of this information theoretically because that's never the way that anyone is going to understand something by learning it in a textbook however i do see in the comments uh, someone said that crypto should be taught as a separate subject in schools yes. so yes. I, I think that's something that we can all agree yes. on definitely needs to happen and i think the the books that you have been working on and will continue to work on uh, might be might be one of those resources in the future so I, th- I see we've come to the end of the hour. So uh, just to close things off, uh, if, if uh, people want to follow you, where is the best place to stay in touch? So um, I'm definitely on you know, Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I would ask that you visit www.bli.tools, T-O-O-L-S. It is a subscription. Um, and if you message, I will send you a discount code. 
and also I can provide it, you know, for the, the show notes as well. Um, but definitely let me know what questions you have. Um, the Bitcoin Cinderella books are on Amazon. Um, you know, it's, it's about sharing, letting others know. And I also want to say, I'm still scared with different things that I do too. You know, um, when I move my crypto, the small amount that I have from one wallet to a coal wallet or whoever, I'm always still nervous because I don't do it every day. So, you know, I still have to go back to, um, to my notes. And that's the other thing I will tell everyone. If you, this is, this is so critical. Um, and this is why I created the, 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 the organizer for my daughter. Different wallets have different ways of having you verify. So I realized that, you know, there's a phone wallet, there is a computer wallet, there's Google Authenticator, there is uh, authentication through email. Um, there's a lot of different ways, which is why um, it is important for as you're going through this process to ask the questions, to write things down. So that way you don't have to rely on your memory because our memory is faulty. And um, I know we're going to have more conversations about all this, but, you know, again, it is a very exciting space, but there's a lot of layers to it. So um, reach out. That's why we're here. Well, thank you so much for your time and for all of the amazing insights that you shared today. I think it was just so rich with so many takeaways and I wish we had four hours to discuss all of this. <laughs> but so my final question before I leave you to your uh, wonderful Toronto day and your conference that's coming up. Yeah. Uh, what personal philosophy keeps you motivated in the space that's so complex, that is so rife with problems and with complexities? And, you know, as we said earlier, it ages you by 10 years, every 10 minutes. If you look at the news and the industry news, what is it that keeps you going in here? Well, the first word that popped into my mind, which is actually true, is love. I love the, the, the people in the space. I love the, the learning and I love the future of what is happening here because I see the possibilities. I know um, I, I applied to kind of speak through GBBC to be at the UN uh, for their sustainability development goal thing. Um, th there are so many individuals that don't have bank accounts. There are so many individuals in the world that are in climate impacted areas. We as a community, and I, this is what I say at the end of all my shows, be kind to yourself, be kind to others. We're also interconnected. We're all part of one world. These days, this is so true. You know, um, I wouldn't be speaking to you now if it wasn't for the Internet. You know, again, we can be we can navigate around the world on Zoom and Twitter and all these other platforms. But we also need to be personally connected with people that we meet in the street, that we see, you know, as we travel we're people, we need to be connected and we need to be, you know, caring and loving about each other. And that's, that's the fun of um, writing the stories, knowing that they're helping others and, um, you know, figuring out what the next day is going to be because it, there's, it's a, it's an adventure and, and I love being part on the, of this ride. Well, I couldn't agree more and I couldn't have said it better myself. It's so absolutely crucial that as we continue to evolve alongside technology, that we remember that we are 
very beautifully human with all our failings and all of our shortcomings. It is what makes us who we are. So AI might be, I mean, not that it's at all perfect, but AI might be, you know, this future perfect tool, but we are still the ones that are having to engage with these technologies alongside our relationship with each other. So Jackie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's just been absolutely delightful having you on. And if you are listening on live, be sure to make, to follow Jackie on Twitter. And if you're listening to this after the sh after, on the show, on the podcast afterwards, uh, yeah, we will put it in the show notes. There's a whole host of different uh, platforms where you can connect to Jackie. And to the audience, thank you so much for all of your patience today with all of Twitter's uh, yeah, very interesting quirks today that it had. And I will catch you again next week for another episode of The Future of NFTs brought to you by Adlunum. Cheers, guys. Have a great day, Jackie. Enjoy the conference. Thank you for everything. Have a great day, guys. Bye. You've been listening to The Future of NFTs. Subscribe to this podcast on your favorite streaming platform like Spotify or iTunes. Connect with Adlunum on Twitter at Adlunum Inc. or our website, adlunum.cc.